For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. So, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Our guest today on The Enemies List is Pete Weiner. He is a guy who has shaped a lot of words in his life and a lot of things and ideas that you've seen American presidents say. And a lot of the, the, the rhetoric and the difference in the Republican Party today is very stark because of the way Pete learned and, and, and helped communicate going back uh, in the Reagan Bush 41 and George W. administrations and in writings from the Washington Post to the Atlantic and everywhere else. We come from, I think, Pete, a, a place in an older party where there was a kindness to it and a, and a kind of, not to use the old kinder, gentler phrase, but it was a kinder, gentler party when we were coming up as younger guys. And I'm curious, you wrote a piece last week called The Party of Malice. And it really, that, that title really struck me and that, that concept really struck me about just how defined today's Republican Party is just by cruelty and nastiness. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Thanks for having me on, Rick. I appreciate it a lot. First, in terms of what you were talking about, the party that you and I emerged from, I mean, it wasn't a perfect party, and there were probably excessive genes that I, I wasn't aware of, as I should have been. Nonetheless, it was a profoundly different party. I think it was a profoundly different party philosophically. For one thing, I'd say now the Republican Party is not a conservative party, but a populist nationalist party. But I think the biggest change is what you're getting to, which are the sentiments, the disposition, the sensibilities and uh, you know, for George W. Bush, he, he had a phrase which he was championing called compassionate conservatism. It was interesting that never actually really had a lot of resonance with the base of the party. Even when he was president, there, were, there was resistance to it. And that was at a time in which you could begin to see where the Republican Party was, was going. But even before that, and in a different arena, I guess, or different domain, there were figures of a kind of grace. Ronald Reagan was a man of of of, of grace and a certain dignity. You, you know the old stories. He wouldn't take his coat off in the Oval Office. And well, Reagan was the uh, object of some pretty nasty attacks. He almost never responded in 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 kind. George H. W. Bush was a man of just renown, of like just a sterling character, beloved by thousands of people, friends and so forth. And George W. Bush, whom I knew best because I worked closest with him, is a person of both deep Christian faith 
and also a man of integrity and decency. And that matters because these movements, these sentiments within both parties can exist that are somewhat malicious. Then the, the question becomes political leadership, which is what do the leaders do to contain it, control it, put it on the fringes? And of course, when Donald Trump came along, he tapped into those things, which were pre-existing, and then he, he amplified it. But yeah, I, I broke with the Republican Party relatively early in the Trump years, and it was part of the reason is what you alluded to, which is a kind of malice, a t- kind of cruelty and crudity um, that was really at odds with the party that I was a part of and that I would want to be a part of. You know, as we were coming up, you know, we went through Reagan and then Bush 41 and then W. And, and people can disagree with them ideologically or politically, but they the character of those men always seemed to reflect the conservative movement and the party in varying degrees and capacities. But now it seems like the only thing that the party does is reflect the character of Trump back. It, it seems like that weird inversion. Was that, Do you think that was inevitable that we were going to get to something like that? Is that just a societal thing or is it just – something else that broke? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I don't think it was inevitable, but I think there were currents that were that were happening that made this a possibility. And then Trump Trump seized, seized onto it. You know, I mean, Donald Trump, because he's a person of no r- r- real uh, political right. leanings, he was liberal in many ways, as, as you sure. know, uh, before he the Republican Party. And he was flirting with an independent bid in the late 90s. If he had decided to, to become a Democrat, or let's say he would have run for the Republican nomination in 2012 or 2008 and lost, uh, that might have finished him politically and somebody else would have gotten the nomination and the Republican Party would have gone in a different direction. It, it may have reflected, in fact, I'm pretty confident it would have reflected some of these changes, some of these uh, undercurrents that were happening. And so the party would have changed, but I think what when Trump came in and first won the nomination, and certainly when he won the presidency, that transformation of the party was was complete. Um, you know, I would argue that Trump's imprint on the Republican Party exceeds even that of Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. and that's saying a lot for people like you and I because we knew. Uh, not only the impact of Reagan during his two terms, but in the aftermath. I mean, he basically set the parameters uh, of of the GOP for you know for decades afterward. Um, but Trump took that in. There, there's been a moral inversion of the party. They chose not only a person who is corrupt, but a man of borderless corruptions, a, a man of sociopathic tendencies, and a person that, as best I can tell. Um, will do anything or say anything. I don't think there's any line that Donald Trump won't cross to advance his own interests. I, I want to say one one thing about that too. In some respects, one can be somewhat more. I'm not sure if understanding is the right word. I, I do think that Trump is sociopathic. I don't think that he has a moral core. I think for him, morality is to Trump what color is to a person who's colorblind. I just don't think he has it. I don't think he sees it. So what he does is perfectly predictable. To me, the, the, the more disappointing thing, and in some ways the stronger indictment, is the party that has rallied around him, the people who know better and yet have gone along with, with this moral freak show. Um, and it's, it's not anything that... Uh, that I would have imagined happened when, uh, when, when, when I started my journey in the, in the Reagan administration. 
this morning, for some reason, I was thinking about an event that I – just before I worked for the Bush campaign in 88, I was working for Connie Mack. I was a political guy for Connie Mack. And I remember this moment of Connie Mack and Jack Kemp at this at this dinner. And I was just – I was a kid. I was five minutes out of college. I was watching these two guys just have this wonderful – like optimistic thing. Like, you know, if we start building out this ability for everybody to engage in the America, and I, I look back at that now and I just can't even imagine, it would be like people speaking Sumerian, ancient Sumerian <laughs> to a Republican voter. Now they, they and they were having like a round table at some event and people just, people were, just, their hearts were full. And now I don't think you, I don't think the language even exists for, for what the MAGA party is now. Yeah, that's a, that's a very telling anecdote. I, I worked with Jack uh, for years at what we were a place called Empower America. And, you know, Jack, it's interesting that you ma- mentioned him. I, there may be no more antithetical figure to Jack Kemp than Donald Trump uh, for the reasons that you said. <laughs> Jack was so capacious in his views. Um, I don't think Jack ever met a person in politics he didn't like. Uh it, you know, it's, to some extent, as you'll recall, some people were frustrated with him when he was a vice president for Dole because he wouldn't go after Clinton and and Gore in the debate, you know, hard enough. It just wasn't in Jack to do that. And for him, uh, you know, the, the, it, it was all sunshine and 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 broad and bright horizons and all possibility, um, maybe too much so in Jack's case. But it spoke of a certain um, heart and cast of mind, uh, which one couldn't help but appreciate. And of course, as, as, as you know, as well as I, he was always trying to reach out to broaden the party, uh, to bring in uh, on matters of race, but on other things too. So it's, you're right, it, it's, it would be like a different language. And if, if a Republican, leading Republican, used the language of Reagan or, or, or Kemp, uh, or, or, or Bush's, you know, they would, they would be laughed at and, and it, they would be viewed as, as, as rhinos and as woke and, you know, with snowflakes and, and, and all the rest. So it's, it's difficult to overstate how much the party has changed in terms of those dispositions. It really has. And I think in few ways, other than on immigration, you could, you see a wider, a wider difference. I mean, they, Reagan and both Bushes, they believed in the propositional nature of America. It wasn't blood and soil. It was, did you come here to build a life? And did you build a life in this country based on the rules of America? Did you follow the constitution? Did you become a part of the culture and the society? And that propositional nature, I always thought was the center of the American brand to use it in, you know, in the, in the modern parlance. And now it's just disappeared. It's like the, 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 the desire to close the door and the racial component of anti-immigration views used to be kept way under the radar screen. And now it seems to be front and center with white replacement and all that. That doesn't, I mean, at least to me, that seems to be like the most painful like departure from that idea you could have in America and, and even conservative America that comprises people from everywhere. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good insight. Uh, in terms of public policy, I, I would agree with you. I think immigration has been the biggest, the biggest change. As you said, it, it, it was a propositional party, not a blood and soil conservatism. And now it, it, it is very much that. 
and it's not just uh, you know a, a reluctance to, to 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 bring immigrants in. I mean that's a, that's a legitimate debate that societies have, which is certain levels of immigration that you know you you have to cap it at some point. So honorable, thoughtful people will disagree with that. This is something very different. This is the targeting uh, of immigrants, turning them into the other, the subhuman nature. Now, Trump, you know, signaled that right from the get-go when he was going down the golden escalator in 2016, and he was describing this case, you know, uh, illegal immigrants, but that it was a dehumanization. And and, and it struck me, and I wonder if, if you think the same thing, in the 2016 uh, campaign, um, attacking immigrants was to Trump what welfare reform was to Clinton. Every time he got in a jam, that's the mm-hmm. card he played, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was the Muslim ban or, or, or any of the, uh, the other stuff. The other thing is I have looked at a uh, Houston uh, – it's on YouTube. You can watch debate between George H.W. Bush – Ronald Reagan, 1980, Republican primary in Houston. And there's a four or five minute conversation. It's a question that was asked of them about uh, undocumented workers, illegal immigrants. And Bush and Reagan are almost falling over each other to show generosity toward them. And of course, Ronald Reagan signed an amnesty bill in 1986 for more than three million you know, illegal immigrants. Um, and you read Reagan's speeches and both Bush's speeches on immigration and, you know, the way in which they viewed immigrants as, as great contributors to the country um, is very, very powerful. And I think really does go to the best of America and really to the roots of America. So I think that that, uh, that about face on immigration, it's one issue, but maybe it's the most, uh, most obvious. I think a lot about the sort of like 30,000 foot view, and we've talked about it in this conversation, the sort of sense of party today, the Republican Party today is defined by this sort of pessimism and malice and closed endedness. And I think it does infect the whole country. I think there's there's always a, a sort of like, I think pessimism is really contagious. How, how does a country survive without a big optimistic narrative? Because I, I feel like that was always another part of America. And you you've captured that in a lot of your writings and the speech writing you did, uh, that, that sense of this, this big, hopeful country. And, and it just seems like the darkness on, on frankly, on both sides, there's an apocalyptic darkness on the left as well. Uh, how does a country survive without a, without a, a hopeful narrative for its future? Yeah, I think over time it probably doesn't. I mean, it, it can withstand it for some period of time. Um, but in the end, you, you can't, as a, as a nation, have large parts of the population wed to catastrophism and hate and grievance. I mean, it's, it's a pretty toxic stew. So as you said, it's a dark vision. It's in many ways a despairing vision. And, but it's more than that. It's, it's also this, this, this hatred and this antipathy for, for others. I think they're tied in, by the way, because I think people who have a catastrophic view of where we are, if they think that the country is at the edge of a cliff, that, you know, we're two minutes from midnight and that the other side is not just an opponent, but an enemy and that they want to hurt the country, your children and you. If, if that's your, your, your attitude, your outlook, 
then that'll push you into some pretty desperate places and some pretty dark places. And then you develop a hatred for other people. And that, of course, catalyzes its own series of complications, which is, will you compromise? Like our system of government is set up because of the separation of powers and all the rest for compromise. But if you believe this is the children of light against the children of darkness, you, you can't do that. So over time, um, a country has to come together to some degree um, or it splits splits apart. And part of that is is a hopeful vision. You know, as as you know, because you work in politics, you, you've always got to be attuned to the moment. Right. So I, my hunch is that a, that, you know, a Reagan kind of optimism wouldn't work in this in this uh moment. It's it's a different, different moment. You have to be able to speak to that moment that resonates with people, but then you have to try and kind of find an inflection point and you have to root the vision of the country into something higher and better and more beautiful and more hopeful. And it can't be Pollyannish, but it has to resonate. And and maybe they're themes of honor and decency. I do think also, just to, to add to, to your point, I wonder if you're finding this anecdotally, there is, you know, America's capacity for self-renewal is pretty remarkable. And there are these studies that have been done about the exhausted majority, uh, you know, that people are just tired of this relentless antipathy and acrimony. And you see groups and individuals and movements that are beginning to arise I just talked to somebody this morning, actually, I ran into him at, at Starbucks, and he had been to three different cities. He's involved in the sort of political, cultural, social arena. And he said, you know what topic came up more than any other at those three different stops? And I thought, I, I thought, well, is it Taylor Swift or something? <laughs> and he said, love. He said, people were just talking about love and the need for love. So I do think that sometimes a virus creates its own antibodies. And I think that we're sort of in the midst of this struggle right now, which is people seeing the direction that the extremes, but particularly Trump, has taken the party and saying, this isn't what this country is about. It's not what we want to be about. And they want to shake this cloud uh, that is that is hovering over them. Uh, On the other hand, we're against forces that are very, very determined and very, in their own way, very skillful. So I feel like this is a kind of a great drama playing out. And we really don't know how it's going to, uh, we don't know what the denouement is going to be. I don't think the, 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 that the Trump side, the nationalist side, populist side, however you want to describe it, I don't think they have an end game really either. I think the apocalyptic vision of, uh, you know, we have to do it right now. We have to take everything we can do right now. It does not really have, you know, it's like most end time cults have traditionally been wrong about the end times. Yeah, I agree. There's not really an agenda even that they're after. I think right now it's a very limbic system generated. And and a lot of it, you know, there's this term that's, that's used, which I think is 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 opposite the, the moment we're in, which is affective polarization, which means that the polarization is driven more by hatred for the other side than loyalty and love of your own side. I think that's very much the case in the American right. And I mean, Donald Trump could, you know, could spin the wheel and he could one day or one week end up in one place on a particular issue uh, and end up a week or two later in a different place. And they would follow him. That's the nature of a kind of cult of personality, which we're, which we're facing. 
But I, from the right, certainly from the MAGA world, what matters is owning the libs. It's whatever they want. We're you know we're against, and that's potent potentially. But you can't build a country or a vision uh, on it because they don't really know, from what I can tell, what they really want. They don't even. They're not even interested in governing. This is this is all show. QED everything with the Hill right yeah. now. From Ukraine to the border, everything else. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think this is theatrics. It's a particularly ugly and dangerous kind of theatrics, but it is a theatrics. And um, you can't run a government through theatrics. Right, through, through, through theater. So one last question for you. As a guy who's been a White House speechwriter, what do you think of Biden's rhetorical presentation, his speeches, his, his, his big public communication style? I happen to like it. Um, but I'm curious what your take on it is. Yeah, I think he, I think he does pretty well. I, I think in his major speeches, they're pretty thoughtful. I think he understood the theory of the case in 2020, which was the soul of the country. And I thought he made that case reasonably well. I think they've been a little bit scattered so far up until now. And I, I really think now that the, you know, the GOP primary is de facto over, they've really got to get their rhetoric and their campaign in, in, in order. But I find uh, his rhetoric pretty good, not, 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 not historic, not hugely moving. And I do think that part of the problem is his presentation. He's, he's never been a great orator. I think he, when he was younger, he viewed himself, I think he patterned himself after Bobby Kennedy. I think that was probably the political figure that, that he, he most admired. But certainly since he's gotten older, it's just harder for him to carry, to carry that message. You know, um, I've, I've had discussions with people uh, who, who are not pro-Trump, but are conservative and, and they're critical of Biden. I'm much less critical of Biden. A, I think he's actually a bulwark against the radical left on a whole range of, of, of issues. I, I don't think there's anybody who could be realistically the leader of the Democratic Party now who would be better than, than Biden in that, in that respect. The other thing I give him quite high marks on is he has ignored a lot of provocations from Trump and MAGA. And he, uh, I don't think he has gone intentionally to divide the country. I think he has, he has tried as best he can to unite it in, in some ways, but there are limitations for him as an individual, but I also think there are just limitations in terms of where the country is. I do think that at the end of the day, uh, he's, going to have to prosecute the case against Trump in a powerful way. He shouldn't cross any lines. He shouldn't, you know, go down in the gutter. But he's got to make the case that Trump is a fundamental threat to uh, to democracy and to human decency and that America is better than than uh, than this. There are other things he's going to have to do. You'd know better than I because you've you've been more intimately involved in campaigns than than, than I have. Um, but, but rhetoric is, a, is, is a lot and, and everybody knows rhetoric is important from music lyrics to, to letters from loved ones, to books that, that mean something, there's something about words that resonate in the human heart and the human spirit and catalyze action. And, um, and he's going to need to find that, but I think he's, he's done a, done a pretty good job. Well, Pete, where can people find your writings and where can they find you on social media? In terms of writings, The Atlantic and The New York Times are the places uh, to go. That's the main places that I write for. And um, I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter or X, and I'm a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum.
Terrific, terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Pete Weiner. You have been a spectacular guest. I love this conversation, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me on and, and for what you're doing. Thanks so much. All right. Look, folks, like many of you, I use a lot of Apple products, iPhone, Macintosh, blah, blah, blah. My earbuds are, uh, I'm on like, my phone says, like Rick's earbuds, pair eight. So I, I, I use a lot of Apple products. But I swear to you, if I see you wearing the goddamn Apple Vision Pro headset in public, I'm going to slap it off your face. Oh my God, people. Scott Scott Galloway makes the point that Apple products are tend, tend to be used by people who are in the, the top billion in the world. There is nothing about this goddamn headset that makes you look cool or smart or or interesting it makes you look like a goddamn idiot do not wear the apple vision pro headset in public do not walk on the street wearing it please for the love of jesus do not drive your car wearing it i know this isn't like the normal enemies list person or thing that you guys are used to hearing but there's something about me that headset has triggered the inner Luddite in me in some profound way. Don't wear the fucking Vision Pro headset in public. If you want to wear it at home, wear it at home. If you want to wear it in your office, wear it in your office. But if I catch you driving with that goddamn thing, I, I'm going to lose my mind. Anyway, that is my item today on the enemies list. I know it's not a standard thing, but you're just going to have to let me have my, my 60-year-old Luddite moment with the Apple Vision Pro headset. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. <laughs>